And if you have a Bible with you, turn in your Bible to John chapter 11. I hear excitement for children's church. You guys don't walk into church that excited. I don't hear any of you chanting about excitement about being here. John chapter 11, we're going to be picking up in verse 17. It's a very long reading this morning. Joel actually read this in our lamenting response a couple weeks ago uh, to the shooting at uh, Covenant School. But we're going to read it again. You know, sometimes in movies where they have flashbacks, where they show an event and then they have to actually go back in the history of the story in order to help explain what's going on in that event... Well, last week we looked at the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus dies on the cross, and then on the third day he's risen from the dead. And we see how Mary Magdalene, in her grief and her sorrow, she is brought from mourning to mission. But the Gospels, they're there to give us kind of a testimonial, a witness of the raw facts of the resurrection. But there's other places, both in the New Testament, in the Pauline, and Peter, and John writings, but also earlier on in the Gospels that sometimes help give us a better explanation of the power of what happens in the historical activities of Jesus. And so we're going to actually look back to one of these other accounts. We're going to move back in time from where we were last week and look at the story of Jesus and how he confronts death and these two grieving sisters who encounter Jesus as Jesus faces and encounters death. We're going to pick up in verse 17. I'm going to read out loud, read along in your own Bibles, or it'll be on the screen for you to follow along. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus, Lazarus had died and already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off from Jerusalem, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she responded. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. A profound profession of faith. Carrying on in verse 28. Now when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary and saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to go to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice it's the same exact words that Martha says. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept, was his response. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, 
By this time, there will be an odor. In other words, in the King, New, Old King James Version, I love it. it, she says literally, Lord, he stinketh, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes to the Father, to the eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then lastly, dropping down in verse 53, and here's the Pharisees' response. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This ends the reading of God's word. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that the resurrection would not be old hat for us, even as we dive into not just one week, but multiple weeks of looking at the resurrected and risen Christ. Lord, would you help us in our unbelief? For those of us who don't, we claim and profess belief that you're a God who can raise souls and bodies from the dead. And yet, Lord, we have come to believe that you cannot defeat the sin and the sin patterns and the addictions of our lives. So would you convict us of such unbelief? And when you convict us, or call us and, and convince us of your great power, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We'll put it plainly, in an understated way, though. Death is a problem, you may have noticed. If we are forced to look at death in the face, and some of you have, we will be crushed by it. See, nobody can live a day in their life without forming some form of, tr- of strategy for dealing with the reality and the inevitability of death. And the main way, the main way in our culture in which we deal with death is by denial. One writer put it this way, he says, for society's sake, we must hide the unbearable disturbance caused by the ugliness of dying. People need to believe that life is happy, and therefore, we must deny that death exists. This is the bleakest admission of actual despair. He's saying if anybody begins to actually admit to themselves the inevitability and the reality of death, life will be drained of all joy. Not, not the, day, the day we die, it'll be drained of joy, but now it will be drained of joy. And there's two ways in which we tend to live in denial. One is we simply ignore death. We do everything we can to not think about it. We put our dying people in hospitals, right? We keep them far from us. Let's not talk about death. Death is obscene. Death is something we're just not going to talk about here. I love what Woody Allen said. He said, I prefer immortality by never dying. He just doesn't want to deal with it at all. But here's the other way. We don't just ignore it. We also sentimentalize it. If we're forced to deal with it, we sentimentalize death. We say, right, okay, well, let's not be afraid of death. Let's face it and say it's our friend. Death is a natural thing. Death is not an awful thing. Death is a a beautiful thing. It's just the circle of life. You go to a peaceful place, and death is simply the final stage of a life well lived. You've heard that, perhaps. And when you hear it, you know in your heart that that is a damnable lie, that that is foolishness. 
And all you have to do is actually stand and look in the face of somebody who has lost someone recently to know that that is foolishness. That that is a cosmetic statement that works about as well as putting lipstick and rouge on a skeleton. It just looks more creepy that way. Some try to come up with shallow forms of immortality. Well, she goes on living forever in our memories. That doesn't really help us very much, does it? But the reality of life, if we really take time to consider death, it is simply too painful for our sweet, sentimentalized silver linings and sticky, shiny bows for such tragedies. I remember hearing uh, one friend, it was, a family was ministering in uh, New Orleans, and they were doing ministry work in the downtown area of, of New Orleans and, until Katrina hit, and they had to completely relocate. And they were grieving one day to another person at the new church in the new city that they were at. And, and they, they, one of the persons said to her, well, I just think we need to stop focusing on all the negative things around Katrina. And this person who had lived in New Orleans looked at them pan-faced and said, our pediatrician committed suicide. That's how grieved they were by the devastation of Katrina. Another was saying, don't give me your positive silly talk. We have, to come, we have to actually face the reality of this. And so the, the question for us as we come to this text is what do we encounter in the way Jesus deals with death? When we watch Jesus deal with death in this passage, what do we encounter about him? The, here, here's the gospel account of what we're hearing in this story. The gospel tells us that Lazarus gets really sick, really sick upon death, and his life is hanging in the balance, and Mary and Martha sin for Jesus, and Jesus kind of dawdles and takes his time, and so Lazarus dies before Jesus arrives, and when Jesus finally makes his way to Bethany, where Lazarus has lived and Mary and Martha has lived, everyone is in mourning, and Lazarus' body has been in the tomb for a number of days, and what Jesus did next is one of the most famous histories and incidents in the the stories of the Bible, but it's also one of the most revealing showing us not only who Jesus is, but what he came to do. Who he is and what he came to do. And we encounter Jesus dealing with death through two different interactions. I pointed out as I went through the reading, he's going to encounter, he's going to have an interaction first with Martha. She comes to him and says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he interacts with Martha in one particular way. And then Mary shows up and says the exact same thing. And and Jesus responds in a completely different emotional way. So let's look at those two ways. And then we'll have one third final point. First, let's look at the way Martha encounters the truth claims of Christ in the face of death. Jesus comes to Martha and he says to her, bold face, he makes this claim. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now here's the dialogue between Jesus and Martha. She comes to him and she says, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Jesus then in verse 23 says, your brother will rise again. And what does Martha do? She kind of sentimentalizes, doesn't she? Ah, I know, I know, he will rise again one day. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not talking about someday. I'm talking about today. Because the resurrection of the life has showed up at the tomb. That's what he says. And that is a truth claim that Jesus is making here. Jesus is saying that there is a resurrection and a new life that you need from him and that you can get in him that actually will proceed and must proceed any physical resurrection. 
that there is a spiritual resurrection that Jesus says, I have the power to give that actually precedes a physical resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Jesus is saying that our spiritual life must be resurrected first. That while, yes, an effect of sin and rebellion is that our bodies grow old and die, but we have a deeper problem. In fact, a, a, a core problem, a problem that is actually behind and causes our physical decay. We have a soul problem. Our souls have seen decay and death because we're separated from God, our Father and Creator. And all of us should admit that we are not what we should be from the inside out. Your life may look pretty nice on the outside, but on the inside, at the very least, it's not good. But actually, if you look at our lives and do a careful examination, it's not good on the outside either. We're supposed to be loving our neighbors. We'd rather not even acknowledge our neighbors. Patient with our kids. Who wants to do that? Generous with those around us. Generosity is no fun. I like having my stuff. Thinking of others is greater than ourselves. That sounds awful. This is how, and it, these are all things that we are called to live by. We are completely screwed up from the inside out. And so something has to happen to change and heal us from what is broken inside. In other words, we need a spiritual soul resurrection that would then lead to a physical resurrection at some point. And Jesus is saying, that's what I came here to do. I am the resurrection and the new life. If you have me, if you have been joined to me, then by my power and my spirit at work inside of you, we will never be separated. And therefore, my power in you will be in you so what does he say? So that you may die physically, but spiritually you will never die. You will never die. I heard the story this week of a, of a man who was really sick, and uh, the doctors were fairly flummoxed, so they did a number of tests on him, and eventually they determined this man had, had Legionnaire's disease. Now, I, I know almost nothing about Legionnaire's disease, but I, apparently you don't want to have it. It's not a good thing. Uh, and it's particularly not a good thing because of how difficult it is to ward this disease off. Uh, the doctor said that this disease is so strong and, and virulent that we are, they said to this man, we're going to have to do, we're going to throw everything at your system that we can. And so they say, we're essentially going to just, we're just going to uh, carpet bomb your system with all sorts of antibiotics because we have to get something inside of you that has the power to defeat the disease that is running rampant inside of your body. That's what Jesus says he came to do. That what you need at the core of you is a spiritual resurrection to take care of the disease of sin that is running rampant in your system and that will destroy not only your soul, but your body as well. Now let me illustrate this point by pointing to another one of what Jesus, miracles that Jesus does. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 6, let me read this real briefly. He says this, And behold, some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, Ah, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, and this is the punchline, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that is the greater issue, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is this, that the more, the more important 
thing that this man needs is forgiveness of sins. That takes greater power. But just to display to you, to make you understand that I am indeed the one who has the power to forgive sins, I'm going to raise this man so that he can walk. That if I can do this, then I can do that as well. And so it is. Jesus, he's claiming, his big claim here is not that first and foremost that he can raise Lazarus from the physical death. His big claim here is that I have the power, he says, to raise Lazarus and to raise anybody within earshot of me that I am the resurrection of the life and though you may physically die tomorrow, you will never spiritually die. And by the way, just to make, make sure you understand that I have that power, I'm going to go ahead and raise Lazarus from the dead as proof that I have this power. That you, this is what you need, is this power. And so here's my question. Here's what he looks at Martha. What does he say at the end? He said, I'm the resurrection of the life. If you believe in me, though you die, you may, you may always live. You will always live. And then what does he say to Martha? Do you believe? And that is the question for us on this point. Do you believe that Jesus actually has and does have the power to raise your spiritual life from something dead and grotesque to something living and beautiful. And I want to speak particularly, not, not just to those of you who maybe are outside the faith or you're considering it the, the grossness of your sin and you need, you wanting something desperate for something to change, but for you believers who've been doing this for a very long time and you look at particular sins and attitudes at the core of your being and you go, when is that going to die? And perhaps you've given up the, any hope that Jesus actually could raise that aspect of your life from death to life. Do you believe? There was a pastor in our denomination who tells the story of walking through. A, he was just simply doing his, you know, he was playing pastor. He was doing his routine things, coming to church on Sunday. He was part of a pretty traditional church, so they had Sunday morning church, and he had Sunday night church, and then they had a Wednesday night prayer meeting. A lot of churches have Wednesday night prayer meetings, and in one week, he was leading a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and he was talking about the, the power of prayer, and one man actually got up and had the audacity to look at him and said, Pastor, I actually don't think you believe that. I don't think actually any of us believe this. That we actually, I don't think we, any of us believe that, that God can do, has the power to change anything in anyone's life. And the pastor felt the need to defend himself, but later on as he was driving home, he thought, what if that guy was right about me? And so he's driving home and he decided, well, I need to do something that proves that I truly believe in the power of God. And so he said, I'm going to do something crazy. He was passing a Dairy Queen and he sees a group of people a motorcycle gang hanging outside of Dairy Queen. I have no idea why a motorcycle gang hangs, is hanging outside of a Dairy Queen. It's not the place where I usually find motorcycle gangs, but, but he finds them hanging outside of a Dairy Queen. And so he pulls up and he, he gets out of the car and he walks straight up to the guy who's clearly the leader of the motorcycle gang. And he says, Jesus wants you. And everyone kind of looks around and they're like, what is this guy's problem? This is a nutcase. And the pastor then, as quickly as he can, says something about Jesus <laughs> and Jesus dying for his sins. And the, the other, other motorcyclists are kind of snickering and saying, I think you got the wrong crowd, preacher. And the preachers, I know, I, I know, but listen, God seemed to be telling me that I had to pull in here and say something to this man. And I, I don't know if you guys will believe me, but I just want you to know, I'm the pastor of the church right over there, and he pointed the direction of the church. And he said, if any of you want to talk more about this, I'd love to tell you about Jesus. And then he shimmied out of there as fast as he could. <laughs> well, a couple days later, 
couple days later, he's sitting in his office at work one day, and he gets a knock, and it was the leader of that motorcycle gang. And the man said, I was not about to say a word in front of those other guys. Will you tell me more about Jesus? A year and a half later, that man not only had received Christ, but he married that pastor's daughter. And then he went to seminary, and he became a pastor in our denomination. Now, I just use that as an example from one person's story. Do you believe that God has the power to resurrect your life? Because that's what he's claiming he has to do. Jesus looks at death, and he's essentially claiming this. He says, first, there's a death under the death. There's a physical death, but there's a spiritual death, and that has to be dealt with. And Jesus then, the second claim he's saying is this, is I am the one. I am the one who can deal with that death. I can deal with the first death, and if I can deal with the first death, then I can deal with the second death. Now, that is incredible power. In other words, I want to put it very plain as to what Jesus is claiming here. If you have the power to bring people spiritually from death to life and from physical death to new physical life, then you are making a claim to deity. Jesus is saying, I am God. Do you believe me? Only God can give life like that. So that's what he does with Martha. Martha comes crying and weeping, and he gives her a propositional truth. Let's see the next thing he does, though. Mary comes up, and she says the exact same thing. And yet Mary encounters something in Jesus' response in the face of death. She, she encounters the tearful cries of Christ because of death. She experiences the tears of Jesus. She experiences the glory of God, not just in his claim to deity, but in his compassion and in his tears. Jesus is the God-man who can both resurrect from the dead, but also the God who weeps. The shortest, book in the, shortest verse in the whole Bible is John chapter 11, verse 35. Two words. What is it? Jesus wept. It's what every kid wants to, uh, to, to get in uh, Bible memory week, right? It's like, uh, John 11.35, I memorized it. Good, we're good with Bible memorization for the week. That's cool. Jesus wept. And that's cheeky. But do you understand that actually might be the best passage that you could read? It's the shortest verse, but God came into the world and he grieves with us. Why does he weep? I mean, this is, and this is crazy. Jesus, in a matter of moments, is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he takes the time to weep. This isn't like he shed a manly tear. He didn't get misty-eyed. This is sobbing with Mary. He's about, why doesn't he just go, you know, enough with the waterworks, everybody. Let's turn this funeral in a party, and let's skip the crying parts. Why doesn't Jesus do that? Well, yes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and this funeral's going to end. But Jesus also knows what's going to happen in the rest of history, doesn't he? Because Jesus not only knows about the tears at Lazarus' tomb, but he knows the tears that were at Auschwitz. And he sees the day that your father, even old in old age, in which his hand slips from yours in death. And he sees the days in which black men are hung from trees during Jim Crow. And so he weeps. And he sees terrorists who are flying planes into towers. And he sees gunmen who shoot up nightclubs and schools. And Jesus sees the death of the little one in your womb before you all ever got to meet him or her. And that's why he weeps. Because yes, he is going to raise Lazarus in this moment. But he weeps for all those in whom, with whom he will not immediately 
raised from the dead. And so Jesus weeps, and his tears are beautiful. Do you know this about Jesus? Do you know this kind of Jesus? Have you seen his glory? Have you seen the glory of his love and care? It's beautiful. Jesus weeps, not because he's weak, but because he loves And he loves the Marys, and he loves the Marthas, and he loves the widow living a lonely grief. And he loves the father who has lost a child whose grief always sits there just below the surface. That's who he loves. And he's with a mother who has a faint memory of the swooshing in her womb of a child that she never met. He sees, and he loves, and so he grieves. What a display of of the perfection of his love. Jesus will not close his heart even for 10 minutes to your sorrows and your griefs. And so when Jesus cried with Mary, the crowd said, what did they say? What was their response? Look how he loves him. Do you believe that Jesus loves you like this? That not only that he has the power to bring new life, but that he loves you like this. Letitia Wright, I don't know what it is about Marvel and stuff like that that I've been quoting from recently, but she was in Black Panther. There's Letitia. She quit acting for a while because she was deeply depressed. But then she joined a Bible study in London and she met Jesus. And she eventually went back to acting and she said she prays before every scene that she acts now. And she feels that God has given to her as a mission in life that wherever she goes and whoever God takes her, that that is the place in which God has called her to spread the love of Jesus. Because people's souls are dying, not just their bodies, but their souls. And she said this, you see, I know this because my soul was dying and he saved me. He resurrected me. So I can't keep this to myself. I am too in love with him. Have you met the Jesus who's in love with you so much so that he would grieve with you and sit with you in your depression and your sorrows? And have you fallen in love with him? Do you know he loves you? At Easter we say, look at what he has done out of his love for me. And so Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. A claim that he is God. But it's crazy. At the very next moment, he breaks down sobbing beneath the weight of Mary's grief and in the shadow of a grave. You would think if a person was really divine, He wouldn't be that emotionally exposed, but he is. And so here, what do we see in Jesus? We see deity combined with human vulnerability. Now, if you know much about church creeds, what I just gave to you is the doctrine of the nature of Christ, is that he is one who is fully God, and he is fully man. And he must be both, to have the power to raise us from death to life, And to have the weakness to enter in so that he might destroy death. To grieve with those who grieve. One last point. Both women. First Martha, she's encountered Jesus as he faces death. And then Mary, she encounters Jesus as he grieves and cries out in the face of death. Lastly, we see the encounter, the thunderous clash of Christ against death. And it starts here in verses 33 and 38. Look what it says. It says, Jesus is deeply moved. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, it says, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Drop down to verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to a tomb, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and the stone lay against it. 
The words that I'm focusing on there are the words deeply moved. The translators have quite an issue trying to translate this into our vernacular. The Greek word there is in its most, its most literal sense is the snort of a horse. And so what some interpreters believe that actually what this is referring to is this is the snort of a war horse that is angered. In other words, it refers to a violent kind of displeasure. It is what comes out of you vocally when you cannot describe any longer with words how mad you are. And so we see that Jesus is compassionate to tears, but we also see that he is angry. And by the way, I'll speak to you men in particular because I think we struggle with this. Our pattern is we go to anger and we never get to the tears. I know I'm emotionally healthy when I get to the tears first. And then out of my tears, then my anger can rightly come. Jesus goes to the tears first and then the anger comes because he is angry. And what is he angry at? He's angry at death and how he's destroying those he loves. He becomes angry over the ravages and the wretchedness and the sorrow and grief that death has brought upon his creation and upon his lovely image bearers. You see, anger is not a sign of something wrong with Jesus. It is a sign of his love, and it is right and good that he should be angry. The more love you have, the more anger you have when what you love is threatened and demolished. And so if you have a God who never gets angry, then you don't have a God of love. Jewish writer Abraham Heschel said this, the anger of God actually discloses something beautiful about the character of God. The secret of God's anger is his care. To care about anything entails the possibility of being moved by them. And because Jesus loves, he is deeply moved. Some of you say, relax about death. You were born and you're you grow, and yet at some point there is a tipping point physically, and you, you, know, you, you eventually kind of ease into death, the circle of life, right? But that's not how Jesus felt. We were not created to die. We were not meant to be separated from those that we love. Jesus was not dispassionate about death. He hates it. I mean, if, let me just display the silliness of the way of the, the sentimentalizing, that's a hard word to say, sentimentalizing of death. Because how do we actually respond when we're faced with death? Imagine if you, had, you went out tonight for a little bit, and husbands, you came, home and you came home to a bloody, devastating scene where someone had entered your home and slaughtered your family. And the police come on the scene, and you go, you know what, would you guys help me in this moment as I'm facing the death of my family? Can we all, can we all get in a circle and, and, and sing the circle of life from Lion's King? Is that what you do? No. You would take the, clo the closest baseball bat you find and you would go crazy. You would scream and rage in horror and that is Jesus' response. He is horrified. And so in his grief, there is a towering anger that Jesus, he does not approach the tomb of Lazarus with a, a, a whimpering, quivering weakness, but he approaches as a champion to down his foe. And so he stalks death into that cemetery in Bethany. And he comes to encounter and attack his enemy. He, who is this? Here is the Lord, strong and mighty in battle. Do you know this God? And so he is angry, and out of being moved, what does he do? He does something. A couple weeks ago, after another shooting, it feels like this gets louder and louder every time there's a new school shooting. 
right? People offer thoughts and prayers. And now what is the outcry to thoughts and prayers? You can take your thoughts and prayers and send them straight to a hot place. That's what people say now. Because someone has got to do something. Now, I'm not here to tell you I have any idea what, to, what there is to do. But here's what I, I do know. Jesus comes into the world and he has the same response. Someone has to do something. And Jesus says, I will do something. Because of his love and seeing all of us at some point in our lives weeping at the side of a coffin, Jesus weeps, but he doesn't just weep. He gets mad and this leads to action. He moves out. Christian counselor David Paulison says it this way, all forms of anger follow this pattern, good anger and right anger. That matters. It is wrong. I am displeased. Therefore, I am against it. And I must change it. And so Jesus' loving anger, it goes into motion. Jesus comes to the tomb and it's day four. He's been dead for at least three days, probably day four now. And by the way, it was not uncommon amongst Jews and many other ancient people that you didn't actually believe that the person was dead until day four, right? That the spirit, they actually had this, in some parts of their, of their theology, the spirit would actually hover over the body for three days. But if it got to day four, then it's clearly over. Pack it up, go home, dead is dead at some points. So Lazarus is dead. Not mostly dead, all the way dead. And so Jesus says to Lazarus, he comes to the grave of an actual dead man, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now understand this, if no one comes out of that tomb, then there is no need for us to show up here ever again. And we can use our Sundays and to sentimentalize our life all that we want. But if Lazarus comes out of that tomb, and Lazarus comes out of that tomb, then it should change your life. Jesus sees death, and he hates it, and he is moved by it, and so he engages the problem. And so what do we see? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead because he has the power to do so. And the ultimate demonstration of of power is to what? To overturn death. It's funny, there's actually speculation amongst theologians throughout church history. I don't know if it's actually true, but it's, it's fun that they, they speculate in this way, that if Jesus hadn't specified, if Jesus hadn't said Lazarus by name, that everybody would have risen from the dead. That he had to make sure, I just want this one, dude. The rest of you, I'm coming back another time. And so here's what we see in this. Our older brother took on death, and he whooped him good. Wouldn't it be great if some of the great scenes and the great miracles of Jesus, that we had some of the great sports announcers of our time announcing it? Just imagine this. Remember Al Michaels? I love Al Michaels. What a great voice. Monday Night Football. But what's his most famous announcing ever of a sporting event? It was uh, the, the miracle on ice, right, at Lake Placid Olympics. Do you believe in miracles? That would fit this, wouldn't it? I like one just a little bit better. There's one better, George Foreman versus Joe Frazier at Madison Square Garden. Joe Frazier, he is the toughest fighter maybe ever. And George Foreman enters the ring and he carries with him his wonderful grill. (laughs) And they're fighting and George Foreman suddenly bursts on the scene in a profound way in the voice of Howard Cosell. Don't you love that voice? What's Cosell's call? Howard Cosell says, down goes Frazier. And then he says it again, 
Down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. If Howard Cosell got to broadcast this event, what would he say? Down goes death. Down goes death. Down goes death. And in that moment, the angels in heaven will pull out their vuvuzelas or whatever it is that they have, and they would go crazy, and they would lose their minds like we should. Because death will be dead. It is doomed. Death has a grip for just a moment. And here's what that means. It means death does not have your beloved one in its grip any longer. But for a moment... Jesus has your beloved. He is the victorious one. Death clings, and then after it has done its worst, it lets you go. Because it has no power any longer. Understand this, in order to raise Lazarus from death to life, though, it costs Jesus something, doesn't it? That's why I read verse 53. Did you notice the last line of the story? Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. When Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, from that day on, the Pharisees looked for ways to kill him. This man has too much power for our comfort. And so we had to kill him. Now that had to be done, his enemy said. He's got to go. And so Jesus knew, and he makes a deliberate choice in the face of the Pharisees, if I bring Lazarus out of this grave, it means I get put into one. I get put into one. You see, Jesus knew the only way was to, 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 to loosen the jaws of death was that they had to close on him instead of permanently closing on those that you love and upon yourself. And the only way to make our death not something that is the end of the story but actually make death redemptive was to experience his own death. Now that is a picture of the gospel. Here's what the gospel is. We have a God who is so committed and so grieved by the suffering and death that he sees that he was willing, God himself, to enter into this world and be involved and go under that suffering and death himself. You know how we know that we have a God who cares about our suffering? Yes, we don't have the greatest propositional answers ever to the suffering and the sin in this world. But we have a Savior who says, I will enter into it to defeat it. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves you and me. So much so that he gave his life for us. That's what Jesus does. Arnaud Beltram, he was a 45-year-old French policeman the day that he entered and arrived at the scene of a hostage situation. It was going on inside of a, a supermarket, and there a gunman had already killed four hostages. Beltram didn't hesitate. He negotiated with the murderer to have the rest of the hostages released at this trade, that the murderer would take Beltram himself. And that's exactly what happened. This man took Beltram into custody and released the rest of the hostages. And you would think often what happens is the murderer then turns the gun on himself, but no. He had Beltram kneel down and he murdered him execution style. He gave his life for others. And you know what happens? What, what's the response in France? The response in France was the president, the whole nation rises up. Church bells ring in honor of this man who would lay his life down for others. And so it is appropriate that we too, that we stop week in and week out, and we honor our older brother 
who laid his life down for us so that we too may go from death to life. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, I, I could use some convincing in my own heart of hearts. That you have the power to destroy sin and death in me. Spirit of the living God, would you come fall fresh on us? To convince us once again that there is one who loves us, but he joins his love with his power to give us new life. So Lord, I pray that not only for myself, but for many others in this room. And Lord, I also pray for those who have lost loved ones, who during these days of Easter, sometimes it just brings the grief more to the surface. And so Heavenly Father, I pray that those in this room who have been touched in deep and profound ways by the loss from death, that they would experience the grieving Savior who comes alongside them. But Lord, they would also not be crushed by it. That in their grief and their sorrow, that they would know not only that you're there with them, but that you have the power to defeat death. And so, Lord, we thank you that the John Dershers Death does not hold him. And the Randy Thorntons, and the Charleston Cates, and the many other people, I don't know their names, but their names are on the hearts of people in this room. Would you convince them too? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.